Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap, that's Creole for something extra. There is a painter, a curator, a geomorphologist, and a physician economist who investigates the inequities in health outcomes due to racial discrimination and the resulting mistrust. Dr. Marcella Alshan is one of 25 new MacArthur Genius Fellows. The award is an acknowledgement of the fellows' demonstrated talent in their fields and their current and future stature as leaders in their fields. And Dr. Alshan joins me now as part of our series highlighting local fellows, the genius next door. Welcome to Under the Radar, Dr. Alshan. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to have you. Now, Harvard describes you as a microeconomist studying health inequity. You have a master's in public health from the Harvard School of Public Health, an MD from the Loyola University Chicago Stritch School of Medicine, and a PhD in economics from Harvard University, hence the physician economist. But I'd love you to explain what that is. I mean, what you do. I'm assuming it means you look at medical conditions and analyze them through an economist lens. That's great. Um, I I do use an economist lens, both theoretically and econometrically. And I study the causes and consequences of health inequality for marginalized populations in the U.S. and elsewhere. And I also try and drill down on solutions that will give people the opportunity to live healthier, more productive lives. So what drew you to that particular focus? You know, actually, my preferences have been pretty stable (laughs) over time. I grew up in the 1990s when our last major global pandemic, HIV AIDS, was actually at first it was a death sentence. And then all of a sudden, these miraculous drugs, these antiretroviral therapies were, were developed. And some people lived and some people died, and it was an accident of, you know, your geography and economic circumstances in some sense. And that was just very gripping for me, that that stark inequality. If we think about it now, these are some issues that have been at least bandied about, certainly during the COVID situation. But I want you to go back to when you first started to sort of hone in on this did people sort of look at you askance, like, what? What are you talking about? Health care, what? <laughs> I mean, was that the response you were getting as you're sort of pulling this together and looking at it through this lens? I certainly did build off the work that others have done in this field. My own advisors and mentors, my committee consisted of Paul Farmer, who often is on GBH and also a former genius awardee, David Cutler, who really pioneered the field of health economics, and Michael Kramer, who was a development economist, Nathan Nunn, who looked at history, and then informally by Claudia Golden, who has looked at, you know, the economy through the perspective of, of women, whose voice was has not always been represented in discussions in economics until really her groundbreaking work. So in some sense, I'm 
sort of an amalgamation of all of those different threads. And what's so interesting to me about this award and so validating is that, you know, as an economist, there's gains to specialization. Everyone recognizes that and it's probably a huge part of productivity growth. But here I sit and have sat sometimes less comfortably than other times, bridging all of these different disciplines and work topics. And then out of what what feels like out of an oblivion, MacArthur just picked up on that and, and provided me with this extremely important windfall that will allow me to continue to work in this cross-disciplinary space. Well, it's been my observation that MacArthur just sort of watches a lot of people really at work, doing their work. And, you know, those of you who are selected seem not to be paying attention at all to any of this other stuff. You're you're a really focused people. I think that's why it's always such a surprise to you when, when somebody says, taps you on the shoulder because you, you, your head is down, which I really appreciate in talking with all of you over the years. It's been really exciting to, to learn about your work and what you're doing. So let me go back to some foundational work upon which you built a lot of what you've just uh, spoken about. The Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male, that was the title of the study. It was a 40-year experiment run by the Public Health Service, which followed 600 rural black men in Alabama with syphilis over their lives, such as they were. But the key was that the officials, the, the physicians, the folks, refused to tell the patients about their diagnosis, refused to treat them, and actively denied some of them treatment. And just in case people are saying, well, was penicillin around? Yes, it was. So this was a deliberate move so they could observe these people. They wanted to just watch the course of the disease. Now, now you know why it's so upsetting when people mention this and, and link that to distrust in certain communities. Before you talk more about how that links to the work that you're doing and have done, here is a clip from the movie Miss Evers Boys, 1997 film with actress Alfie Woodward portraying a black nurse, Eunice Evers, who was forced to lie to the Tuskegee syphilis study patients in her care. If they were white, would these men have been treated as they were? You should know better than anyone. Yes, I do, Senator. If they had been white, your public health service would never have agreed to, to do this study in the first place. They wouldn't have dared. If they had been white, you congressmen wouldn't have voted every year for 40 years. If they had been white, somebody would have said something before now because everybody knew what was going on. It was no secret. But because they were black, nobody cared. All right. So now we have an understanding of the Tuskegee study. Tell me how that has been central to the work that you do. Thank you for that clip. I think it really demonstrates the callous disregard for human life that was exhibited in the study. So I I do do some randomized trials. I do quite a few, and and maybe we'll, we'll talk about the work in Oakland. But I was very interested in where mistrust comes from and what effect it has on demand. And you can't ethically ever randomize mistrust obviously. So with looking at through our history, though, there are unfortunate episodes of egregious displays of exploitation by people that are supposed to be beneficent, be looking out for us, have our best interest in mind, i.e. medical doctors, physicians, public health officials. And one of those episodes was the Tuskegee 
study. And I had heard about this study, by the way, as an undergraduate in Alan Brandt's course. And I was just aghast that something like that happened all the way up until the early 1970s. So it just, it, it left such an impression on me, but I didn't have the tools. I didn't have the tools to really examine it. And then alongside Marianne Wanamaker, once I got my PhD in economics, I partnered with her. She's, a, she's an economist at University of Tennessee, Knoxville. And we were interested you know, in this question, what is the effect of the disclosure of this horrific event on healthcare utilization and health outcomes for black men? And so the unique features, the way that it was, you know, all of the parts of the title of the study that you just said, the fact that it took place in Tuskegee, Alabama, the fact that it was targeted against Negro males, as you said, and the fact that it was disclosed in a particular year when a whistleblower finally went over the CDC and went to the Associated Press finally, when it was halted, all of that together, we were able to leverage and use econometrics in this interacted triple difference approach to try and make causal claims, which is one of the really unique and phenomenal features of, of, of applied econometrics. A key reason why the Nobel was just awarded in, in econometrics was for the ability for us to take observational data and try and make causal claims. So that's what we did. And we found that that disclosure event was associated with significant reductions in utilization, coupled with increases in mortality and increases in medical mistrust. And in fact, it could explain about a third of the gap in life expectancy between black and white men over the age of 45 in the ensuing decade after the revelation. And that really, honestly, to be, to be fully transparent, Kelly, that that struck a chord just looking through the archives because as long as our economics papers are there usually isn't a lot of time to sift through all the qualitative work and all of the archival work but reading the archives including the fact that this whistleblower peter buxton actually tried to initially move things internally and write wrote letters which prompted a sort of large internal meeting of the CDC and PHS and individuals that were involved, officials that were involved in the study. And, and this was well into the you know, civil rights movement in the late 1960s. And at that point in time, physicians sitting around the table said, you know, this is quote, like, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but too great of an opportunity. We, we have to continue just letting these men die. Uh, that's, that's what they were saying. And that they said, well, in the current moment, it's become a political issue. So let's go get the local county board of health to sanction this. And let's go look at the local chapter of this or that group to, to provide us cover. And that was their response. So that really led to the next line of inquiry, which is, okay, you know, with our methods, we couldn't look to the present day and see exactly the effect of, of Tuskegee on mistrust today. But qualitatively, it's still talked about a lot, along with contemporaneous racism and discrimination that also contributes to the mistrust. But in this context, with this history and with the contemporaneous issues, would it be the case that having a more diverse physician workforce could help improve demand for preventative care, particularly among 
black men. And, and that's the study that we did with Dr. Owen Garrick and Grant Graziani in Oakland, California. And that, and that was a randomized trial. So two things. I just want to underscore for people listening to you that the essence of what you said at the beginning to describe how this this piece of history was foundational, this is why it kept coming up and keeps coming up as we talk about vaccine hesitancy with regard to COVID. And this is why certain communities were vaccine hesitant and pointed to this history. So it feels very much alive, even though it happened quite a bit ago. So now as to Oakland. In Oakland, your specific question, as I can put it simply, you you can add to it, is to see if the physician workforce, if my doctor is Black, if my doctor is a woman, would it make a difference in increasing trust in my healthcare situation? And turns out it does. That's right. There are a few kind of key parts to the design. One is that we partnered with local barbershops in the in the East Bay. And, and, and why that's important is because a lot of studies in health economics and in public health more broadly are generally done using, you know, what I would call convenient samples. So they take electronic medical record data or claims data, and they assess things based on the availability of those data, maybe linking it to other data sets or whatnot. And that's fantastic. But what that misses is that there might be quite a few people who are outside the regular, you know, the regular claims data, or they might churn in and out of different insurers, and it can be hard to link them, hard to find them, or they simply might not come at all. And so one component that we felt was really important was to actually meet people where they were in the community. If you're trying to look at dimensions of trust in the in the limit, there might be people that are, are so concerned about the type of care that they will receive that they wouldn't actually come to the doctor on a regular basis at all. So using a convenient sample was sort of one of the decisions that we, we rejected and we decided not to do that. What we also were able to do was to set up our own clinic and employ our own physicians, half of whom were Black male physicians and half of who were white or Asian physicians from the Bay Area. And all that actually wasn't part of the plan. That was out of necessity. We simply couldn't find a clinic that had a diverse physician workforce that had more than one Black male doctor alongside another another physician of a, of a different race or ethnic background. I mean, it was it was incredible. And I think it just underscored the scarcity of particularly of Black male physicians in the physician workforce. Those numbers have been low and remained low, about 500 or so matriculants per year, which since the since the 1970s. And, and there's a, a, a good report from the AAMC on that particular issue. So we recruited from the community, we set up our own clinic, we randomly assigned men to receive concordant or discordant race physician. And that randomization kind of gets around the bias that you might have if you're, again, just looking at observational data, you might, you know, look at who the patient is paired with, but that's not randomly assigned. That could be the outcome of a lot of different decisions and a lot of different constraints and resources. Lastly, we focused on preventive care. And preventive care is also really important in healthcare. It's important in healthcare 
because it's, you know, any doctor will tell you that it's always easier to prevent a condition than to treat it. So it has these high rates of return on, on things that, for example, the USPTF has determined to be evidence-based. But in addition, it has a characteristic where the patient, him or herself, feels fine. So this is not an acute curative session where you know, you're in pain or you see some blood or you have an acute medical issue that you yourself as a patient are bringing to attention. This is you feel fine and an expert is telling you that even though you feel fine, you know, you need to get a colonoscopy or have a flu shot or a COVID vaccination, et cetera, et cetera. And so in those situations, you can imagine that there's an oversized role of trust in your belief in what the expert tells you. So all of those things together are the things that we really wanted to focus on, community-based population, randomized design, setting up our own clinic wasn't part of the plan, but we, we did what we needed to do to do the study, and then, um, and then preventative care. And what we found was huge effects in the increase in demand for preventative care among Black men who were paired to a Black male doctor. And this is amongst a group of doctors. They all, quote unquote, shifted out demand. So we had a first stage where the men, the patients just picked out what they wanted on a, on a screen after seeing a photograph of the, their doctor, and a second stage where they actually met that doctor in person and re-optimized and re-chose what they, revisited the decision of what of these preventative care measures they wanted to take up. And so all of the doctors increased the demand between that first and second stage by talking to the patient, explaining things to the patient, et cetera. But for those that were matched with the same race physician, that was just much, much greater. And in fact, for in quote unquote invasive services, things that just required a finger prick of blood, I say, you know, invasive with a little eye because these are not colonoscopies. These are just finger pricks of blood for diabetes you know, a quick check, check of, of diabetes or cholesterol or a flu shot, these were on the order of, you know, 50%, 70% increases in the take-up. Those were really impressive. Eye-opening. Exactly. And I think we're underestimating in some sense too, because again, these are not very invasive things. We're, I, and I think we're underestimating the overall effects of diversity because we're just talking about how does it affect patient care, but how does it affect the dynamics of how care is delivered more broadly? I mean, that's something... I am working really hard to try and understand right now because I think I think it could have these important externalities on a norm setting and 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 treating people with dignity in a way that a homogenous workforce you just might not get. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guest is Dr. Marcella Alshan, who is one of the 2021 MacArthur Fellows. Well, I I, I have to uh, bring up the group of Black women doctors in New York who, frustrated by hearing the numbers, the low numbers of vaccination in predominantly Black neighborhoods, and realized that there were many other issues involved, transportation, wherever they set up the vaccination shots, people didn't know. It was way far away. They didn't know those people. So they gathered together. They do not work together. They gathered together and made a little group and set up in tents right in the community and had lines of people who came to be vaccinated because they you recognize them, they built trust, and uh, these women doctors worked almost 24-7 for several weeks to just try to make inroads into 
getting those vaccination rates up. So that's a very, it seems to me, akin to what you demonstrated in your study and what you will, what your overall work is all about. So now you have an opportunity to do more of this because you got $625,000 to do with as you wish. So what do you think you might do with it? Yes. I mean, that that is phenomenal. I I hope to do more of what I've been doing now, quite frankly, and continue taking risks. I'm starting a, a health inequality lab here at the Harvard Kennedy School. There's so many students, Kelly. There are so many students that are interested in equity issues broadly in economics and in health. And so it's it's great to see that enthusiasm. So, and, and that's one of the things that I, I really, I, I love about being in Cambridge and at Harvard is just the opportunity to, to help train those students as I, as I have been trained and to take these risks and look at these issues. I mean, when you, when you mentioned the physicians in New York, you know, they understood that, that can, Constraints were very important, that social determinants, transportation is very important. In fact, in Oakland, we also provided Uber provided rides because how do you get the men from the barbershops to the clinics? So looking at things from these diverse lens of where are pe- where are people in the community, what are the barriers they face? That's what I hope the Health Inequality Lab tackles. Concretely, I'm working on a project right now with Crystal Young. She's an JD, PhD economist at the law school, and we are actually trying to improve correctional health care. And we're doing a randomized trial with the National Commission of Correctional Health Care, and we're randomizing jails. Some jails will get their health systems accredited, so they'll go through the accreditation process. Some will not. And people who are incarcerated have a constitutional right to health care. They're one of the only groups in the United States the do um, from Estelle V. Gamble. So, but they have no, there's very little oversight. Unlike you and I, when we go to the hospital, the Joint Commission accredits the hospitals. There's very, very little oversight and everything falls on the county. So we're interested in, you know, whether an accreditation process alongside many other measures that have been discussed, such as decarceration efforts and, and things of that nature, but whether accreditation efforts would help improve correctional health care. So that's, that's the type of work that that I've been doing. It's, it's risky, but it's also extremely fulfilling. <laughs> and one last question. We love the story of how you people find out. So where were you? <laughs> what happened? So Dr. Cecilia Conrad emailed me. Uh, she's an economist, former, I think, former genius as well. Um, also Wellesley grad, just saying, oh. but continue. <laughs> she asked about speaking to me about maternal health disparities. Of course, I am happy to speak to. She said MacArthur Foundation has a has a you know person of high net value who's interested in this topic, and we'd like to talk to you about it. And I said that sounds great. And so we we set up a time because I'm teaching quite a bit. I said you know sometime mid September, and then she started coming back to me like, oh you know can I get you earlier? This high net worth person is very 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 really wants to move with this project really quickly. And I thought, oh, you know, this is interesting because you know, I was very polite, but I was like, oh gosh, you know, I said, <laughs> it did not even, I mean, I am, I swear, it did not even cross my, at all my mind. And then, and then I said, well, I have a minute, my daughter's first day of school, I was picking her up. So I, I, I answered the phone and I, I recognized her phone number. So I answered it and 
and I said, oh yeah, this is a good minute. I'm waiting for her to come out of school. And she lays, <laughs> she, she lets me know that in fact, it's not about maternal health, which we eventually did talk about by the way, but that the primary reason was to tell me that, that, I, that I had been selected and for this MacArthur fellowship. And I for sure thought there was some shenanigans going on, but then she read the most beautiful paragraphs about my work. I mean, it brought tears to my eyes that someone would, that some organization, some group of people and, and someone nominated me. I mean, who, who I, I'm, I'm just so grateful. Great story. And we're all very proud of you, our genius next door. Thank you so much, Callie. Thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Marcella Alshon is a member of the 2021 MacArthur Genius Fellows and a professor of public policy at the Kennedy School at Harvard University. Her research focuses on health disparities as a result of racial discrimination and mistrust. She joined us as part of our series, The Genius Next Door. That's it for this week's show. We're on the web at gbh.org news, under the radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubley and engineered by Dave Goodman. Sarah Kaplan is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.